0: is the first 18 verses of chapter 20 in St. John's Gospel. Excuse me. Here in church, it's on page 1089, if you want a quick guide. And at home, it should be somewhere close if your Bible is similar. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciples who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father go instead to my brothers and tell them i am returning to my father and your father to my god and your god mary magdalene went to the other disciples with the news i have seen the lord and she told them that he had what he had said all of those things to her this is the word of god thanks be to god
1: Thank you, Gary. Good morning, everyone. For those who may not know me, my name is Colin. I'm a retired priest and a member of St. Jude's. Neil has already prayed for this ministry of the word, so let's plunge straight in with the message that I have been given for you. It is a truth universally acknowledged that there is an awful lot of suffering in this world. In fact, The problem of undeserved suffering is one of the sharpest arrows in the quiver of people who reject the Christian revelation. And yet, I am standing here to proclaim to you, as a doctrine of our faith, that there is no sorrow so deep that God cannot and will not turn it into joy. How can this be? What is going on here? Am I just propounding some crazy notion that suffering, and especially mental suffering, is, after all, really only an illusion? God forbid. Certainly, it is mental rather than physical suffering that we are dealing with here this morning. But anyone who thinks that makes the problem less severe has another think coming, that's for sure. For the reality is that Traumas such as adultery, divorce, infertility, loss of children, addiction or of suicide in the family, these and quite a few other tragedies can and do inflict mental pain of an intensity not easily imagined by anyone lucky enough to have escaped these or comparable experiences. And yet, without in any way trivializing or making light of the severity of mental suffering, I am still standing here to reaffirm the thesis that there is no sorrow so deep that God cannot and will not turn it into joy. And the ground on which I build and establish this great reassurance is the story of Mary Magdalene, as Gary has just read it for us from the Gospel according to John. I invite you, therefore, to observe with me two elements in these verses from chapter 20. They are, firstly, Mary's sorrow, and secondly, Mary's joy. So, firstly, Mary's sorrow who was she, this Mary from the town of Magdala on the west coast of the Sea of Galilee? We know almost nothing of her backstory. Luke does tell us that she was among a group of women who followed Jesus and his twelve disciples on their itinerant ministry of preaching and healing, and that these women provided for the men out of their means. Luke also says, that Mary Magdalene had seven demons gone out of her. Now, whether you take the New Testament reports of demon possession literally, as I do, or whether you reinterpret them as ancient attempts to describe what modern medicine would diagnose as mental illness, either way, Mary's earlier condition cannot have been a whole load of fun. Seven demons the number of completeness or perfection. She must have been pretty far gone, seriously disturbed. Perhaps rather surprisingly, Luke doesn't tell us how Mary had been delivered or healed, but her presence among Jesus' travelling companions strongly suggests that it had happened through their, or more likely through his, agency. And that will have been the first transformative moment of Mary's life. So how do we imagine how do we imagine that Mary would feel towards these disciples and their authoritative and inspiring leader? My guess is that she would feel profoundly thankful, loyal and supportive. And so it is that we next encounter Mary, eyewitnessing the outrageous crucifixion of her hero and his hasty but at least decent burial. And now sh- here she is at his tomb once again as soon as the Sabbath rest is over. At this point, Mary is already struggling with all the emotions of bereavement when she gets a further big shock. The body which she herself had seen interred isn't there anymore. She runs to tell Peter and the other unnamed disciple. That lot of help they are to her this time. They hurry to inspect the scene of crime and then just clear off back to their homes again, apparently without saying a word. Meanwhile, Mary, now back at the tomb, is crying. Not just crying, weeping. Not just weeping, sobbing. This poor woman is sobbing her heart out. The man she knows and loves and still calls the Lord has been tortured to death in a gross miscarriage of justice, and she can't even pay her last respects to his body because some gardener or other has seen fit to move it without so much as a buy-your-leave. No wonder she's sobbing. She's not, she's not only desolate and desperate, she's also frustrated and gutted, and she's angry. It's not fair. How dare they? And where is God? Well, dear friends, I have to ask you, have you ever felt anything remotely like that? And if no such thing has ever happened to you, can you find in your heart any gift of empathy enabling you to enter into Mary's feelings at this exact moment of her life? Because I suggest to you that we do, in fact, live in a world chock full of mental pain. And when it strikes us, How do we deal with it? Some of us, like Mary, let it all hang out, only to find ourselves stuck with the label hysterical. Others of us bottle it all up and then get dismissed as depressed for what is depression but repressed rage. Still others of us feel tossed about between these two extremes. Us they call manic-depressive, or nowadays bipolar. But we don't care about labels. All we know is it hurts. Only God knows how much it hurts. Mere words like grief and pain and heartbreak and heartache don't get anywhere near expressing how much it hurts. And if we're Christians, it doesn't even stop there. There are the added feelings of guilt and shame because we Christians are not supposed to have problems, are we, especially mental problems. Well, try telling that to Mary Magdalene as she drowns in the depths of her sorrow and pain. But hey, Mary's journey isn't over yet. From the deepest trough of her life, the path ahead now turns unexpectedly upwards, and for her, quite dramatically too. And so we come to observe the second element in her story here, Mary's joy. Coming to the tomb again, still in tears, this time she herself looks inside. And what does she see? Two white-robed angels who ask her the extraordinary question, why are you weeping? Don't they know why? Of course they do. So why ask? Perhaps they are asking her to ask herself. Or perhaps they are very gently and tenderly trying to nudge her towards a completely new take on life an utterly fresh perspective from which to view the world easier said than done mary can't do it she just can't have you been there all she can do is to repeat the immediate double cause of her grief they have taken away my lord And I do not know where they have laid him. Then, maybe she hears a slight sound or she instinctively senses somebody behind her. As she half turns round, he asks her the same question. Why are you weeping? Plus another question. Who is it you are looking for? As if he didn't know. But just like the angels, he is lovingly coaxing her forward into the future. However, still for the moment, trapped in her sorrow, all Mary can see is a gardener, and all she can say is, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And then at last it arrives, the second and ultimate life-changing moment for her. The stranger simply speaks her name, Mary and suddenly she is living in a new universe. It's surely not just how would he know her name, but much more likely the way he said it. She had heard her name spoken like that many times before, with a love and a tenderness and a power which no one else on earth could match or even come close to. I've called this moment Mary's joy, which seems hardly adequate in the circumstances, As deep as had been her sorrow before, so now surpassingly great is her euphoria. The Gospel writer doesn't even attempt to describe Mary's emotions at this transformative point. He credits us, his readers, with enough imagination to perceive that for ourselves. Turning now fully to Jesus, Mary can just about gasp out the one word, Rabboni probably her regular way of addressing him, and then she is completely lost for words and can only reach out and try to embrace him. There is no human sorrow so deep that God cannot and will not turn it into joy. And so now we are ready to pose the question, how was this turning accomplished? By what means did God transform Mary's deep sorrow into such overflowing joy? And the clear answer in the narrative is by the sheer fact of Jesus' resurrection from death. He really did die. She had seen that with her own eyes. Those very same eyes now see him just as really alive again. To take this further, Please let me draw your attention to three doubles. Double number one is the two-sidedness of our human nature. On the one hand, we are emotional beings. Our feelings are an essential part of us. To deny them would be very unhealthy. On the other hand, we are also rational beings. Our powers of reasoning are an essential part of us. To deny them would be equally unhealthy up to now in this brief meditation we have focused largely on our emotions enter now our rationality our capacity for logical thinking that's double number one double number two is the two pieces of evidence necessary to establish the historical fact of Jesus' resurrection they are On the one hand, the empty tomb, and on the other hand, his appearances to his disciples. What nobody, nobody can doubt is that the early Christians really did believe that Jesus had risen from among the dead people. They believed it so strongly that they were ready and willing to die for it, and many of them did so. But they could not possibly have believed that at all without the empty tomb. If anyone could have produced the dead body of Jesus, that would have killed all talk of his resurrection stone dead. The other necessary condition for their belief was Jesus' appearances to so many of his disciples. The empty tomb on its own would not have been enough to convince anybody. It, it could have been explained away by the possibility of of some unknown and illegal body snatchers. Likewise, Jesus' appearances on their own would not have been enough to convince any doubters. They might perhaps have been explained away by some speculations about ghosts or hallucinations, but the empty tomb plus the appearances taken both together supplied a firm foundation for the other. For the early believers' certainty that Jesus had indeed been raised from death. Now, of course, the defenders of our Christian faith are not saying that this line of reasoning proves Jesus' resurrection. That would be a step too far. Any events in history are not like scientific experiments which can be repeated under laboratory conditions. No. But our Christian scholars are saying that Jesus' resurrection is, beyond all reasonable doubt, the most likely explanation for the evidence that we have. Of course, there will always be deniers. There are people who deny the current pandemic. There are people who deny global warming. There are people who deny the moon landings. There are people who deny the Nazi holocaust. Need I say more? Double number three. This is the two big questions of our more recent ages, which are, is it true and does it work? Now, our philosophers tell us that we have passed through the age of so-called modernism into a new period, imaginatively named post-modernism. What on earth are they? Well, let me remind you. Since about the 18th century, any attempt to explain the meaning and purpose of the universe and our human place within it has been met by the modernist question, is it true? But gradually, during the 20th century, the post-modernist stream of thought evolved the more subjective and relativistic question, does it work? So now then, As a conclusion, and I hope a climax to our thoughts this morning, let us first add an extension to our basic theme and then present it with our two big questions to Mary Magdalene herself for her first-hand answers. We claim that there is no human sorrow so deep that God cannot and will not turn it into joy and that the means by which God will effect this transformation is the sheer fact of the resurrection of Jesus from death. So, Mary Magdalene, is it true? Does it work? I think we can all hear her answers. A resounding, rafter-rattling, roof-raising, yes, yes, It does work because it is true. The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Thank you, Colin.